I'm your host, Doug Berg, and welcome to Berg's Brain, a storytelling comedy show that will hopefully make you laugh, make you think, and make you want more. On this episode focusing on childbirth, I'll cover topics from the accuracy of sonograms, hoodwinking your kids into playing the quiet game, losing your kid at the mall, the exorcist, public bathroom koala bear changing tables, and many, many more. So jump aboard the train, get a little insane, getting inside Berg's Brain. This episode of Berg's Brain is brought to you by Slapstick. Slapstick combines humor and Yiddish to promote Jewish culture, tradition, and heritage. Our newest product is the Davenin David, a bobblehead doll that bobbles at the waist to emulate the act of davening, the ritual swaying of Jewish worshipers. Davenin David is a real mover and shaker with 18% more guilt than other bobble dolls. This unorthodox gift is hand-painted, made of kosher polyresin, stands 8 inches tall even with a bad back, and will make the angriest booby kvel with joy. So what are you waiting for, schmuck? Get off your tuchus and order a davening David today. Slapstick. Don't be skittish. It's only Yiddish. Oi! Play us away, Peapod. Kids are in college now, and when I see young parents dealing with their kids, I can't believe my wife and I had the energy to do it. Never forget when the kids were really little. My daughter Hannah wasn't quite three, and my son Jacob was just starting to walk at about 14 months. I came home after work one night, my wife's at her wit's end. And you can always tell when a young mom's at her wit's end, because as soon as you step foot right in that front door, and before you can even place your briefcase or backpack or whatever laptop carrying transporter device down, She flings the kids at you like a Bulgarian shot putter, and in that Linda Blair exorcist raspy voice says, They're all yours, you fucking cocksucker. I need vodka. As her head spun around, hurling body temperature green bile at me with more force than a velociraptor in Jurassic fucking Park. And if you've never been hit by projectile bile before, that shit stings. So I'm standing there wiping blinding hot slime from my burning eyes and being the coolest man slash dad, I said, what should I do with them, dear? Bad answer, see, because her freakish head immediately stopped spinning. Bloodshot eyes stared so deep inside of me she saw my goddamn spleen and in that raspy exorcist voice again said, take him on a flight to New Zealand and stick the little bastards in the overhead bin for I fucking care, you cocksucker. As she grabbed a bottle of Grey Goose, slammed back a huge swig, and floated away in her green bathroom like a ghost as the entire house shook and swayed in an 8.7 earthquake. Who, boy, exhausted moms, and clearly my lovely bride being one of them, sure get good at and really like saying, motherfucker and cocksucker. And there's another time earlier in the process when I learned firsthand women are very good at saying, motherfucker and cocksucker. They seem to love saying these words when they're pregnant in labor, experiencing painful, excruciating contractions, something no man can really understand, comprehend, or empathize with. Sort of like how no women can truly know what it's like to get hit in the balls, like when a catcher takes one under his cup from an errant foul tip, a basketball player gets manhandled while going up for a layup, a boxer receives a low blow while the guy who did the low blow gets a point deduction, which, ladies, I can tell you unequivocally is not equal in value. 
But whatever a guy's kick in the nuts debilitating experience is, it's nothing compared to having the most intense diabolical contractions when giving birth. As for some strange reason, pushing a 20-pound watermelon through a woman's dainty yet amazingly elastic two-inch vagina seems to cause the immediate onset of Tourette syndrome as even the most religious, devout, God-fearing evangelical women who never curse and are aghast when they hear someone curse let loose with more F-bombs and cocksuckers than an Irish priest who just got his Danny boy caught in his zipper after taking a wicked pissa. And I'll never forget our first pregnancy. We get pregnant... Okay, my wife gets pregnant, right out of the gate, which on one hand you're excited about, but as a guy you're a little bummed, because when you're trying to get pregnant, you get to tell everyone you're trying to get pregnant, which in layman's terms, all pun intended, you're having sex and telling everybody you know you're having sex. So if it takes a few months, even a few years, while it can be frustrating, you're at least getting laid a couple times a month during ovulation. Unfortunately, my boys must have been excellent swimmers, the Mark Spitz and Michael Phelps of sperm, and I didn't get that desired amount of trying. I got like one, two tries, then boom, she's prego, suddenly off limits like a 16-year-old babysitter, and I'm wacko, back to whacking off for the next seven and a half months. And I know you can still have sex through basically the entire term of the pregnancy, but the thought of my kid's first image being a circumcised tip zooming in... Zooming out, zooming in, zooming out for 30, maybe 40 seconds on a good day until the confused zygote gets its amniotic bubble sac doused with what the kid must think is milk that it can't unfortunately drink as it bounces off the bubble frustrating the little bugger and I figure the more sex you have, the more milky ejaculations Junior sees is probably the reason that as soon as the kid pops out of mom, he's angry as shit for all the milk taunting and cries like a fucking baby. It has nothing to do with being slapped by the doctor. He just wants his goddamn milk after all the goddamn taunting. So, we're about eight weeks into our first trimester, and we go for our first ultrasound. Our doctor, Dr. Berg, coincidentally, same last name as me, only spelled B-E-A-R-G versus B-E-R-G, is a real nice guy, has good bedside manner, tells us everything looks great, and he'll see us again at 20 weeks for the next ultrasound where we can see and learn the sex of the baby if we want. And we want to. Well, my wife definitely wants to, and if she definitely wants to, then ever the good husband, I definitely want to. And the reason my wife wants to know the baby's sex is that I come from a family of all boys. My dad comes from a family of all boys. And while my wife isn't against having a boy, she has her heart set on a girl, and I'm good either way as long as it's happy and healthy. So a few weeks go by, and my wife's starting to feel a little ill. She's having some spotting, a little light bleeding, and she's a little more tired than usual. We call the doctor, and he says, this is fairly normal. We'll just have to keep an eye on it as we go forward. Well, the following week was one of the more difficult, crazy weeks we've ever experienced. It was a really hot Saturday, nearly 100 degrees, and we went to the river and did a little light canoeing, and I did most of the paddling so Liz could take it easy. We got home a few hours later and had plans to meet friends for dinner. My wife got out of the shower and she said she didn't feel well, had a bad stomach ache. And suddenly, unfortunately, about 20 minutes later, she had a miscarriage while sitting on the toilet. Well, after the initial shock, we called the doctor and got the nurse practitioner and she asked if we could hold on to the fetus by keeping it in a Tupperware container in our refrigerator until Monday when we could see the doctor. And the reason she asked us to keep the baby was so they could run tests to determine if there was something wrong that could keep us from having a full-term pregnancy down the road. 
So like back in the blockbuster or local movie rental shop days and the division of labor agreement of returning the video, often days and occasionally weeks late, this unenviable task fell upon the man of the house, me, and it was my role to scoop up Junior or Jenny from the toilet with a ladle, gently place it into a small Tupperware container, and walk it ever so carefully and awkwardly over to the fridge where it would reside for the next two days like leftovers. I can tell you this. While both of us wanted to drown our sorrows in tequila shots, we intelligently abstained as the late-night drunken hunger fest that typically results in devouring leftovers sitting in the fridge tightly sealed in Tupperware would have been a damn ghastly awakening if one of us had made the mistake and tried to eat our heartbeat-sized papoose thinking it was a wonton. And in this incredibly scary and once-in-a-lifetime moment, I couldn't help but think how lucky it was that my Aunt Miriam got us a set of Tupperware for a wedding gift, as without that gift... We would have had to keep the zygote in a glad Ziploc baggie like a goldfish one playing ping-pong ball toss at a rigged carnival. Well, needless to say, although I'm going to say it anyway, it was a long weekend. First thing Monday, Liz heads to the doctor, and unfortunately I had to go to work because I had a huge client meeting. Well, the client I was meeting with wasn't huge, like a Macy's Day Parade balloon. He was regular size. It was just that I tend to mess up the adjective modifier placement a lot since I blew off English class in high school every damn week. Anyway, I'm with this regular-sized client, but all I can think about is Liz and our Tupperware baby. I'm on pins and needles when suddenly my cell phone rings. I excuse myself, walk into the hallway, and say, Hi, sweetie, how'd it go? Now, the next couple of things she said in response to my how-did-it-go are far and away the craziest, most unexpected replies I'd ever heard to any question I'd ever asked, and I truly had no way to wrap my head around it and could barely speak, because I swear on my kids' lives, here's what she said. There were two. I put my hands to my head, bent at the waist, felt like I was going to pass out, and said, there were two? Oh my God, we lost twins? And then she said, no, there's still one inside me. Alive. Okay. Now, at this point, I'm not sure what the fuck's going on. Is my lovely bride high on some whacked-out hallucinogenic pain meds? Is she still in shock and delirious? Is she pulling the greatest and sickest April Fool's Day joke in history? Or is she telling the truth? And if it's true, is this barnacle baby still attached to her uterus some kind of devil baby? You know, like Rosemary's baby? Damien from The Omen, God forbid Reagan from The Exorcist, and in lieu of a moil for the bris, are we going to need some priest for an exorcism? After I regroup a sec, she tells me there were two babies. One was weaker and passed away, and the stronger, tougher kid survived and is still kicking. One miracle baby survived. To this day, I'm still in awe of that conversation and that event. And the truth is, my daughter Hannah, the one that survived, is one tough cookie. And it's an amazing example of Darwin's survival of the fittest theory. And here's the quintessential example illustrating Hannah's survival gene strength. 18 years after her birth, Hannah applied to and got accepted to the University of Washington in Seattle. She decided to rush sorority, so that meant she had to get there two weeks before school started. So we got her stuff together at a nice farewell family dinner, and then she had a flight at like 5.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning. So I load up the car, drive her to the airport. You know, we shoot the shit, keep it light. But all the while, I was contemplating what I was going to say when I hugged her and said goodbye. And honestly, I was getting pretty emotional thinking about it, and I had to fight back a few tears. So we pull into the departure area, get out, 
unloaded suitcases from the trunk, and just as I'm about to express my emotional parental deity, daughter, I love you, I'll miss you, be safe, have a great time, call me any time you need me, have the best time of your life, goodbye speech, she simply hugs me, tells me she loves me, says, bye, daddy, and she wheels her luggage into the airport and is gone. And I got to tell you, it took me for a loop that my baby girl was now a real adult on her way to another state, crazy college experiences, and I'd only see her at holidays a few times a year. So I get back in my car, and all the emotions came crashing down, and I started bawling like a baby. After a couple of minutes, one of the airport security ladies approached my car, and even though there was no one there at five in the morning, she gave me that motion like, get on, come on, man, move it, bud. Well, as she neared the car, she must have seen me crying, walked around to my window and asked if I was okay. I said in a sad, crying voice, I just dropped my oldest daughter off for college. I don't know what to do. Well, this female security cop was clearly a mom as she said, You sit here as long as you need, Daddy. I know what you're going through, and I think it's beautiful. So you just cry out your tears till you're good to go. Well, I'll never forget that security cop for being human and letting me sit there and cope with my emotions. So I took a few deep breaths, and after a couple minutes, I started to feel really good, really proud that my wife and I had done a great job of raising a kid that, at age 18, was so confident that she could navigate her way through an airport and make it to a school in another state and not be worried, not be scared, and in fact, be so excited that she ran into that airport ready for the next phase of her life. Now that's my Hannah, the tough-as-hell twin that survived. Now my son Jacob, well, that's a whole different story. He wasn't a surviving twin. He was a regular baby. And being the youngest and being his mama's boy, he was less adventurous, not as outgoing, a bit shy, a bit hesitant, which was absolutely fine. We just knew he wasn't like Hannah. Now, they're 17 months apart, one grade apart. So I'm still sitting at the airport after dropping off Hannah, envisioning a year later bringing Jacob to the airport and dropping him off for his college journey. And I knew it would be a completely different 180-degree situation. See, I would have dropped him off, hugged him goodbye, sent him into the airport, and would have got a voicemail a week or two later saying, Hey, Dad, it's Jacob, still at the airport. Dad, remind me, why'd you drop me off here again? And if I'm going to be here any longer, can you Venmo me some more money because it's six bucks a bag for Cheetos? I'm throwing right through them all my bar mitzvah checks. So anyway, back to our first pregnancy. We're now about 20 weeks pregnant, and at this point, the sonogram can show you the sex of the baby. So Liz lays back on the examination table. Dr. Berg confirms we want to know the baby's sex, which we do. He squirts this goopy gel on her belly and rubs the sonogram device around as we start seeing images on the screen. Now back in 1998, the technology was good, but not like it is now. So the visuals were kind of grainy, shadowy, harder to see. So after a few secs, Dr. Burke says, Well, I see a penis. Congratulations. It's a boy. As my wife sighed and leaned back in disappointment as she was hoping and hoping it was a girl. Now, I'm in a bit of an awkward position because I really don't care about the sex, but there was a part of me that kind of wanted a boy as I figured I'd be a little more comfortable with one of my own. And then, kind of out of nowhere... Dr. Berg is doing a little more rubbing and scanning to check on some other stuff when he surprisingly says, Wait a minute, not so sure that's a penis. 
could be the umbilical cord instead. So my wife gets a burst of energy, leans up, and Dr. Berg then says, I'm changing my mind as I'm pretty sure I see labia. Now at this point, I have three fairly strong reactions to Dr. Berg's comments. First, if this is indeed a girl, I don't need to hear the term labia bantered about willy-nilly about my 20-week-old daughter. Call me old-fashioned, but honestly, I don't want to hear about my daughter's labia when she's 20 weeks, 20 years, or for that matter, ever. Second, I'm thinking, just how good of a doc is this guy? He sees a penis, then he sees labia. Did this quack actually go to med school? And third, what the hell kind of baby are we having? Is it a hermaphrodite? Or maybe we're really going to have that devil baby. So needless to say, although I'm saying it, we leave Dr. Berg with no confidence in what sex of the baby is, neither of us feeling confident enough to pick out the paint color for the nursery, but at least my wife has some hope we're having a girl. So, flash forward 17 weeks, we're now in week 37 of the average 40-week pregnancy, when I'm at work in San Francisco and I get a call from my wife as she's driving from a court appearance telling me her water broke in the car and Dr. Berg recommends she go right to the hospital just to be on the safe side. My first thought is, oh my God, we aren't ready. We don't have anything packed for the hospital. And my second thought is, wonder what it's going to cost to get the seats reupholstered. So she tells me to hurry home, grab some things, and meet her at the hospital. Well, I take a deep breath, gather myself, tell the office staff I'm about to become a dad, and off I go to experience one of my long-time fantasies. See, I'm in San Francisco, and the hospital's across the Golden Gate Bridge about 20 miles away. So now I get to hop in my car and drive as fast as I want, definitely triple digits, and if a cop stops me, I got the greatest getting out of a ticket excuse known to man. And to this day, I'm still pissed off, because wouldn't you know it, didn't pass one damn cop along the way. So I jam home, start grabbing anything and everything I think will need. Slippers, PJs, toiletries, pink and blue paint swatches, cameras, pickles, tennis rackets, swim goggles, vodka, and off I go speeding down the highway, and again, not one friggin' cop. I get to the hospital, park, grab all the crap, run into the reception desk. The nurse tells me Liz is in room 666, which is not the most comforting room number as I'm still a bit concerned we're having a devil baby. And as I'm running to the elevator, I hear the receptionist say, good luck in your tennis match. So I get to the room, hug my wife, find out her blood pressure's a little high, but other than that, she's doing fine, although she's a little confused by all the tennis gear. And that begins what turns out to be a 22-hour wait, as she's not anywhere close to being in labor and dilating to the required 10 centimeters. She's like at 1 centimeter. So after an incredibly long night and day, the next morning the nurse decides to induce labor and confirm with my wife that she definitely wants the epidural, to which my wife replies, When I ask for it, give me the fucking shot or I'll kill all of ya. Well, the shot of Pitocin works, and my wife starts going into labor with these jaw-clenching contraptions every couple of minutes. All I can do, all any man can do, is try and comfort your wife. Hold her hand when she's going through the contractions. Remind her to breathe like she's somehow going to forget that basic tenet of life. And profusely apologize to the entire nursing staff for all the times your wife tells me and them to go fuck yourselves. Now, it's getting late in the game. The head's starting to show, there's some crowning going on, and yet our pal and poor sonogram reader, Dr. Berg, is nowhere in sight. And while I'm freaking out, the nurses seem fine, like it's no big deal. 
but it's our first kid. So I excitedly ask the nurse, when's Dr. Bird going to show exactly? And she replies, oh, he's still at his office across the street. Don't worry, he'll make it. At his office across the street? He'll make it? Look, maybe I'm old school, but I'm a baseball guy who likes the complete game with the starter going the distance. I'm not thrilled with the modern-day closer who comes in to get the final three outs. So just when I'm about to lose it, in comes Mariano goddamn Rivera, a.k.a. Dr. Berg, and my wife is now being asked to push, 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 and she's letting out more motherfuckers and cocksuckers than what I had hardy sailors and seafaring pirates turning redder than a clown's nose stuck in a baboon's ass. And after a long day of stress, tennis jokes, and some of the most amazing cursing I'd ever witnessed, my wife squeezes out a beautiful baby, and Dr. Berg says, See, just like I said, it's a girl. You can tell by the lay. At which point I quickly cut his ass off and said, I don't need that level of detail, Doc. It's a girl, says all I need to fucking know. Anyway, so back to that day when I came home from work and walked in to find my wife had turned into Linda Blair, who was last seen vomiting bile on me and floating away down the hall while I felt a tug at my pants, causing me to nearly jump out of my skin as I let loose a high-pitched feminine squeal out of my pie hole. And when I looked down and saw little Hannah, I realized the kids had witnessed this frightening exorcism, and in Hannah's cute little Susie Lou Who toddler voice said, Daddy, is Mommy okay? Because she sprayed a whole shitload of mucus on you. Well, not wanting to scare her, I said, Mommy's nursing a bit of a sinus infection, been kind of phlegmy lately, quickly changing the subject and asking, So you guys want to do something? And Hannah says, Can we go to the movies, Daddy? And my son screams, Yeah! Although he's never been to, nor has any idea, what a movie is. Now, I've been out with the kids in public, but up until that night, I've always had my wife with me to run interference and navigate the public showing of the kids. But this time, I'm Han freaking solo. So I grab multiple diaper bags, wipes, juice boxes, goldfish, Cheerios, rattles, binkies, and a newly filled prescription of 90 magical happy place Xanax and head out on our little adventure. I'm pretty sure the first settlers traveling west in covered wagons brought less shit with them. So I stuff all the crap in the trunk, then start that challenging process of strapping the kids into their car seats. And let me tell you, Figuring out all the straps without strangling or pinching sensitive pink body parts of your kids makes you feel like you're the lead technician on the NYPD bomb squad trying to disarm a suspicious package left on a subway car. Well, I can't get the right strap into the right buckle. Jacob screaming bloody murder. Hannah's clearly inherited her mom's genes as she's looking over at me and shaking her head in a boy, you're a clueless fuck glance. And now I'm sweating more profusely than a 350-pound cigarette-smoking pizza maker pulling pies out of a 600-degree oven in a New Jersey pizzeria in August with the A.C. broken. I'm about to lose it when I look up and see my wife, a.k.a. Linda Blair, leaning out our bedroom window shouting, Your father sucks cocks in hell! as she swigs the entire bottle of Grey Goose, then chucks it at my feet, shattered glass shards flying every which way. Well... Maybe that little speech and bottle toss was the extra motivation I needed as suddenly I'm channeling a pimply-faced 17-year-old dork working the Twisted Colossus roller coaster at Six Flags Magic Mountain, buckling riders in for safety as I miraculously get the kids buckled in, to which my daughter Hannah, again my wife's mini-me, matter-of-factly says, It's about goddamn time, dumbass. 
And about that roller coaster worker job, I don't know why we feel safe when this teenage stoner dude walks over and does that little pull-up, push-down-on-the-metal bar, like that move somehow qualifies for an official safety check. That's it? We're good to go? Really? You never see a shot of the three astronauts strapping into their seats on the space shuttle, and then some nerd with a clipboard and pocket pen protector enters the cabin, pulls up, then pushes down on their straps, gives the thumbs up, and off they go safely into space? So after the 30-minute buckling bonanza, I get into the driver's seat, pop a Xanax, and off we go as I serpentine backing out of the driveway to avoid the raining Grey Goose bottles shattering around us. And just when I think we've broken out of Linda Blair's force field and I begin to relax, the kids start screaming, yelling, shrieking at the top of their lungs. They're not even fully close to developed lungs as my ears ring, my heads pound, my eyes bulge, and I feel like the Grinch listening to all the happy who's and whoville as I channel the Grinch muttering, Oh, the noise. Oh, the noise, noise, noise. There's one thing I hate. Oh, the noise, 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 noise. I'm literally about to lose it when I have this epiphany, this remembrance, this light bulb of an idea. And with respect to that notion of having a great idea and the image of a light bulb going off in your brain, what visual did people who had great ideas see before Edison invented electricity in the light bulb in 1879? A candle? A match? A torch? Is that what went off in their heads? Anyway, back to this brilliant idea. I remember the last time we took the kids out. And when they screamed and shrieked, my wife, who was not spitting green slimy bile or yelling at me to suck cocks in hell at that moment, got the kids to stop screaming and shrieking by playing one of the most brilliant and simple games ever invented, the quiet game. This is that life-saving parental bait-and-switch where you get your kids to buy into the concept, the game of not saying a word for as long as possible while driving in a car. And you get so good at selling the game that when one of your kids starts to talk, you convince them they've lost and their sibling is winning, and that gets them to shut up even longer. Well, we finally get to the mall, and it's mobbed. Wall-to-wall screaming kids, stressed-out parents, more germs flying around than at the test laboratories for Mucinex. And since it's mobbed, I immediately get into the protect-the-herd mode, keeping the kids close as I get in a long line to buy the tickets. It's taken forever. So the kids want to go play in this giant circle with cartoon character pictures at the intersection of all 14 theaters in the Cineplex. I say okay and tell Hannah, please keep a close eye on Jacob. So they're playing in the circle with other kids, and I'm like a mother deer guarding her babies from a distance by glancing over every few seconds as I slowly inch my way forward in line. I look over again, and they've moved to one of those little play areas with bouncy houses and slides. Slides on which kids zoom down faster than German bobsledders as the slide is covered in kids' snot, providing the perfect lubricant to hurdle toddlers at breakneck speed. Finally, I get to the cashier, glance over, see the kids, reach in my pocket, hand the cashier 20 bucks, and as he's handing me back the tickets, I feel that all-too-familiar tug at my leg again, and it's Hannah by herself. Hi, sweetie. Where's your brother? I left him in the play area, Daddy. Oh, that's g-g-g-what? I swivel my head faster than an owl getting its neck cracked by an overly aggressive chiropractor, look over, and no Jacob. Gone. Out of sight. Well, immediate panic sets in. Heart-pounding, brain-pulsing, prehistoric survival of the fittest natural selection panic. And it's a combo panic. 
First, the panic I've lost my kid, followed in a nanosecond by the panic that my vodka-drinking, green-robe-wearing, raspy-voiced exorcist wife is going to spit green vial right through my spleen the minute I walk in the door as I try to explain how her son was kidnapped from the cartoon character circle while I was getting the tickets. So I grab Hannah and run to the circle. Nothing. I'm scanning the area like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. And zilch. So with diaper bags flopping around my neck like breasts of a 77-year-old aboriginal woman from a remote village in the outback who's never seen, let alone worn, a bra in her life, and Hannah holding onto my hand for dear life, I scurry back and forth in between the two theaters, areas 1 through 7, then 8 to 14, and I can't find him. He's gone. And your mind starts going to all these dark places like a kid's been stolen because that shit happens nowadays. I'm freaking out, so I ask a few of the theater employees to help me look. And still nothing. It's been three or four minutes, which feels like three or four days, and I'm completely freaked out in a full-blown sweat. Hell, I'm sweating more than the first time I tried to unhook Debbie Moss's bra in the seventh grade. Just at that moment, I look over and notice that on the backside of the circle is an entrance to Macy's. You know, one of those anchor stores in the mall? So I grab Hannah, the baby bags, and dash into Macy's. The first part of the store is the women's section with those circular racks of clothes. So I start slicing my way through and around the racks like I'm cutting through an Amazonian jungle in search of a rare species of lemur. Suddenly, Hannah screams, Daddy, wait! I said, did you find Jacob? She says, no, but they have some great deals. The dresses are 30% off the already reduced sales price. Jesus Christ, the shopping gene is embedded in their goddamn DNA right out of the fucking womb. Suddenly, I hear two women scream, Oh, my God! And as I twist my way through a clothes rack, there's Jacob, diaper around his ankles, contented smile across his face as he's taken a huge poopy. I'm so relieved it's not even funny, and as I lean down and hug him, I'm hit with this reality of these two irritated women standing nearby me, shaking their heads in disgust, and the unenviable task of de-pooping my son and extricating him like a helicopter pilot shot behind enemy lines in the movie Black Hawk Down, only this time it's called Black Poop Down. So, I scoop up my little soldier, hug him for dear life, walk past the two negative spinsters, and as they shake their heads in disgust, I say... Look on the bright side, ladies. My son's poop, inches from a discount rack, should bring the prices down an additional 10%, don't you think? Well, their anger suddenly turned to joy, and one yelled out, Manager! So, with Jacob's poop-covered bottom clinging to my white gap tee, diaper bag swinging to and fro, and little Hannah at my side giving me that, Oh, I want to see you explain this one to Mommy, look... We dash towards the movie theater, and as I get to Timmy, the ticket-taking teenager, he has the nerve to ask me for our tickets. After the panic, stress, and fright I've just been through, I said, Tickets? You want to see my goddamn tickets? Then reach right into my goddamn pockets and grab them. Uh, don't really want to do that, dude, whined Timmy, the ticket-taking teenager. Good thinking, Timmy, I said, because I've got poop all over me. So, Timmy jumps back gives me the wave-by and says, Uh, you're good to go, brah. I retorted, Good decision, brah. You've got a hell of a future in middle management, dude. So I shuffle past Ticketmaster Timmy and jam to the bathroom. I'm still in Terminator mode, so I look over and digitally recognize one of those koala bear fold-out changing stations. I've seen these in bathrooms before, but I've never used one. 
Remember my wife, Linda Blair Jr., she had always handled the public diapering, which in my view is a paranormal activity much like an exorcism. So, I carry Poop Boy over to the koala table. And by the way, how did koalas get chosen as the fold-out bathroom device icon for changing poopy diapers? Are koalas known for having similar poopies to humans? Are koalas known as the primo diaper changers of the marsupial genus? Is the Koala Bear Association lobby stronger than any other wild animals as they've clearly cornered the diaper changing market? I mean, it's odd. You'd never see a chimpanzee changing station, and chimps are humans' closest living relatives, with each species sharing about 99% of the same DNA. So clearly, chimps have failed to capitalize on the bathroom changing station cross-marketing play, allowing koalas to get full market share. Anyway, I pulled down the fold-out table, placed Jacob on the edge, and as I reached down for the diaper bag, I failed to hold the table and Jacob slams back up into the wall, poop splattering across my white gap tee like a Jackson Pollock masterpiece as a bunch of guys peeing at the urinals blow chunks in disgust. And all I can see and hear at that moment is my Linda Blair wife evil voice contorting and shouting, Stick the bastards in the overhead bin for all I care, you cocksucking motherfucker. Whew, so I finally get him changed. Wipe off my poop-stained shirt and we make our way into the movie, that comic masterpiece, Rugrats Go to Israel, and within seconds, I pass out faster than after an early afternoon frat party quarter session. Next thing I know, I wake up, credits rolling, look over, and both kids are gone. No shit. Well, I'm praying no shit. So I gather all the crap and jam out to the lobby. They're nowhere to be found. Suddenly, I hear what sounds like kids' voices coming from the bathroom. I rush inside and Jacob's naked on the koala bear changing table as Hannah lets go and he flies back inside as they both crack up laughing in that hysterical way only kids can do. So I let him play a few more minutes, swoop him up, give him big kisses, and drive home. When we finally get home, my wife, who's had multiple vodkas and is feeling no pain, is all smiles and fortunately, Linda Blair has been exercised. She asks how it went and in the sequel to The Exorcist, I throw the kids back at her, and in that throaty, raspy voice say, There better be vodka left, motherfucker, as I projectile vomit green slime onto the carpet, and as I float down the hall towards the wet bar, I hear Hannah say, Mommy, I think Daddy has that same really bad sinus infection you do. This episode of Berg's Brain is dedicated to one of our four rescue pups, Harvey, who sadly passed away this week. We rescued Harvey not once, but twice and he was the lone boy with our three girl dogs. Harvey had a bigger-than-life personality, and he made himself known at all times, asking to be lifted up onto our bed, barking for his food, or clicking across the hardwood floors on his way to run outside and bask in the sun. Thanks for all the joy you brought us, Harv. Safe travels. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Berg's Brain, and hope you enjoyed the ride. Special thanks to my close friend, musical director, and guitar legend Jeff Peapod Miller, Thanks to the incredibly talented Berg's Brain graphic designer, Claire Skippelrort. And if you like Berg's Brain, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Check out our website at bergsbrain.buzzsprout.com. If you want to touch base, email me at bergsbrainpod at gmail.com. Peapod, play us out on your new top-of-the-charts hit single in Nepal, Summertime, Bummer Time, where the living is easy, but the breathing is extremely hard. Mm-hmm.